Amen. You can be. If you turn into your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37, Genesis chapter 37, we're continuing our series in Genesis, and today we're looking at the introduction of Joseph and his story. Genesis 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers for pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the field, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and behold, he came near to them. And before, before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped away his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. They took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him, Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. 
When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. One of the biggest fears that uh, homeowners have is that their house will become infested by some sort of pest. In fact, my wife has said to me a number of times, if we ever had our house infested with snakes or rats or bats or anything like that, we just have to burn the whole thing to the ground and start over again. It's one of the worst feelings to have a house infested with some kind of a pest. In uh, 2011, there was an area of Miami that became infested with a certain type of snail called the African land snail. The African land snail is, is a bigger snail. It's about the size of your fist. Um, it, can, it can cause meningitis because of the parasite that kind of attaches itself to the snail. And uh, better than that, it enjoys eating concrete and stucco. Uh, so it enjoys eating people's foundation of their homes. And so there's this huge outbreak because of uh, some people who had brought them in from Africa. And they ended up collecting 150,000 of these land snails that had infested this community. Remember a couple years ago, I watched this show on TV called Hoarders. And uh, this particular episode, there was a, a guy named Glenn, and he had recently lost his wife. And he had a couple of pet rats. Uh, and somewhere along the way, he decided it was a good idea to let his pet rats out, or they escaped. And they started reproducing in his house. And they came, became more and more numerous, so much so that they just completely overtook his whole house. They were in the walls, they were in the cupboards, and they called the, the show came in because obviously it was a health hazard, and they had to rip apart the drywall, and they were just pulling them out of everywhere. They pulled 2,000 rats out of his house. And then after they left, there were so many that were hidden in different places that he found 350 more throughout the house. It's completely infested. I can't imagine living in a house like that. In this story that we're looking at today, it seems like sin has completely infested this family. Sin has run its full course in this family. There's a kind of intensification in this story. That Abraham's sins are, are intensified in his son Isaac. Isaac's sins are intensified in his son Jacob. And now Jacob's sins are intensified tenfold in the lives of his sons. Some of us can easily place ourselves in this story. Maybe we come from broken households. Maybe our families are messed up. Maybe we have families where sin runs deep. Others of us, maybe we come from a, a background of believers 
But we can still see how sin kind of runs its way through our families. Even if we can't identify with that, we can all identify with living in a broken world where things happen that should not happen. Where things happen that just kind of shock us and surprise us. So we're going to look at a question today. A couple questions. We're going to look at the question, where is God in the midst of our brokenness? Where is God when sin runs really deeply? Where is God in a family that is infested with sin? And so we're going to look first at what their sin problem was in this story, and then we're going to look at where God is in this passage. And so the first thing that we see in this passage is favoritism. Favoritism is the kind of precipitating cause of the events that happen in this story. And this is kind of a family issue. You know, a lot of sins are generational sins, and this is clearly a generational sin. Remember, Abraham, he loved Sarah rather than Hagar. He loved Isaac rather than Ishmael. Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob. Rebekah loved Jacob more than Esau. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And in turn, Jacob loved Joseph more than all of his other sons. He has a family history of favoritism. And in one sense, having favorites is not wrong in and of itself. You know, we all have kind of favorites in our life. You know, people who are close to us, friends or uh, family members. You know, if you have a spouse that, you know, should be your favorite person. You know, and you would treat a spouse differently than you'd treat anybody else. So having favorites isn't wrong in and of itself, but what is, what is wrong in this passage? What is this favoritism that he's showing? The best definition of favoritism I could find is two dictionaries who define it somewhat similarly, but put it kind of in a different nuance. One dictionary defines favoritism as the favoring of one person or group over others with equal claims. The favoring of one person or group over others will equal claims. Another dictionary puts it this way. The practice of giving unfair preferential treatment to one person or group at the expense of another. And so when we're talking about favoritism in this passage, we see that all of Jacob's sons, all of them equally deserve his love, equally deserve his support, and he chooses one of them out of the twelve to bestow his favor upon more strongly at the expense of all the other brothers. And we see that the results of that are disastrous. And sometimes that can happen in churches too. Or maybe we welcome certain types of people who come into the doors of the church. You know, maybe we welcome rich people who come into the church. Or maybe we welcome only poor people and we look down on people who have a lot. Or maybe we only invite a certain type of ethnic group into our midst. And maybe we only uh, welcome those people who are educated or only those people who are uneducated. We can show favoritism in the church in the same way when anyone who enters into the door of the church equally deserves our love and our welcoming. James chapter 2, verses 1-4 to says this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. 
For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? So God calls us to treat all people equally. And we see that Jacob shows favoritism to Joseph over the other sons. And he shows that favoritism by making for him a robe or a coat. Many people call it the coat of many colors or the technicolor coat. We don't know for sure if it was a coat of many colors. It comes from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that kind of translates it that way. But in some way we know that it was a special robe. It wasn't a robe that all the brothers got. And this was kind of an audacious thing for Jacob to do for Joseph. Uh, because, you know, we might have a lot of clothes and like wear maybe a different pair of clothes every, every day of the week we could have if we have a lot of clothes. But back then they didn't have a lot of clothes. They might only have one or two coats. And so Joseph probably would have worn this almost every day. And so each day he comes to his brothers and, he's remi- and their brothers are reminded of their inferiority. They're reminded every day about how the Father chose Joseph over them. And so we see this favoritism that wreaks havoc on this family. And then we see pride. Now when I've read the story of Joseph and seen the story of Joseph portrayed, I always felt sorry for Joseph. And I always felt like Joseph was a completely innocent victim in this story. And while he is, I think, mostly innocent, I think he does bear a little bit of the blame also. You can kind of understand some of the feelings that Joseph's brothers might have felt. Of course, the behavior that they, the thing that they do is awful. It's terrible. But we can kind of understand and unravel their mindset when we look at Joseph and this story. He was the second youngest. He was kind of a spoiled little brat. He was the favorite. And we see that he brought a bad report about the brothers to his father. Now, we don't know the nature of that report, but it's the same word for report that's used uh, later in Numbers when when the spies, ten bad spies, come back and give a bad report. A report that wasn't necessarily entirely true. So, We don't know for sure, but it may be that Joseph made this whole story up about his brothers. We don't know that for sure. But he's walking around in his fancy coat, the favorite. And then we come to these dreams that he has. The first dream is that uh, each of the brothers have a sheave of uh, grain or wheat. And that all the sheaves of wheat come and bow down before Joseph's sheave. And then he has another, even more audacious dream that the sun, the moon, and the stars come and bow down to him. Now, if you were in a kind of a rocky relationship with your siblings, if you had kind of a sibling rivalry, would you really want to tell them these dreams? Probably not the wisest thing to do. I had a pretty good relationship with my brother growing up, but we were competitive and we fought quite a bit. You know, not necessarily always an angry kind of fighting, but we would, we would bicker and fight. And uh, we both like to play hockey. And I was thinking about the story, and I, think, I thought about, like, 
What would, I, what would happen if I came to my brother and said, I, I had a dream last night. I made it to the NHL. I was on the Sabres. I was the captain of the Sabres. I was leading the league in points. Everything was just going great. And you were in that story too. You were in the locker room and you were taping up all of my sticks and you were cleaning my jersey and making sure all of my equipment was ready. I don't think you'd be too happy about that dream that I had. In the same way, Joseph comes and he tells his brother these dreams. I mean, why would he come and just tell them these dreams that make his brothers look bad? But of course, we know that Joseph was young. He was a teenager. He was probably a little bit cocky, a little bit filled with pride. But he was a teenager. He was a kid. But his brothers, his brothers should have known better. Everything that Joseph did invoked his brothers to more and more anger. As we read the the passage, I mean, the number of times it says how their brothers' anger increased, it increased, it increased. Each step of the way, their anger increased, so much so that it says that they could not speak anything peacefully to him. In verse 4, it started with the bad report. Then the robe that was given to him added to that, and then these dreams bringing the issue to a head. And this jealousy, this anger for the brothers was probably rooted also in pride. C.S. Lewis in his book Mere Christianity says this, I pointed out a moment ago that the more pride one had, the more one disliked pride in others. In fact, if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me or shove their oar in or patronize me or show off? The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It is because I wanted to be the big noise of the party that I am so annoyed at someone else being the big noise. Now what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature, while the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having it more than the next man. So while Joseph might be a little bit prideful, cocky, uh, young, young boy, his brothers were enraged by that. Every step of the way, they felt like anything that happened to Joseph, any favor that was given to Joseph, was a slight to them, that their pride was wounded. They were passed over. And their competitive rage burned against Jacob, or against Joseph, as their pride had been wounded. And they take out that pride on Joseph. And they accomplish that through. Deceit. So we see three things. We see favoritism, we see pride, and now we see deceit. And deceit, just like some of those other vices, it's also something that kind of ran in the family. Remember, Jacob was the deceiver. And so they take out their vengeance against Joseph and they use deceit to do that. They see Joseph coming in the field and they see him a distance off and they say, let's kill him. And then Reuben steps up and he says, no, let's not kill him, let's throw him into the pit. For he wanted to come back and rescue him later. 
Now we see that just like Jacob, he also was passive. He also tried to deceive his brothers rather than standing up for what was right. Rather than opposing his brothers face to face and saying, no, we can't kill our brother. He said, just throw him into the pit. We don't have to get our hands dirty. He tried to deceive his brothers. He did it through cunning and trickery. And then apparently Reuben goes away and then Joseph gets sold and he comes back and his trickery has backfired. So they sell Joseph into slavery, sell him to the Ishmaelites or Midianites. And then they take Joseph's robe and they dip it in the blood of a goat. And note that they don't tell Jacob, their father, what has happened. They just bring it to him and say, we found this. We found his robe. Is this, is this your son's robe? And of course, Jacob comes to the only conclusion that would be logical at that point that it must be his son's robe, and that he must have been devoured by wild animals. Now it's interesting that Jacob would be deceived by two things, by a, a garment, a robe, and by a goat. Because if we look back in the story just a few chapters earlier, these were the same things that Jacob used to deceive his own father. Remember the story, he was trying to get his father Isaac to give him the blessing that belonged to Esau. So he goes and he kills two goats. And he takes their skin and makes a garment of them. He puts them on his hands and on uh, the smooth part of his neck. And he goes into his father Isaac and he deceives his father with garments and with a goat. It seems like sin has come back to bite him, so to speak. It's come full circle. Just like Jacob deceived with a garment and goat, now he's being deceived with a garment and a goat. And the scene ends in a very dark way. Jacob is mourning uncontrollably. His grief can't be contained. His sons and his daughters, they come to try to comfort him. But he won't be comforted. And he says, I'm going down to the grave in mourning to meet Joseph. Sin has run its course. The favoritism that was present with Isaac and Rebekah, with Isaac and Rebekah, uh, that they'd shown to their children is now amplified in Jacob's relationship with his own children. The pride and jealousy that wreaked Jacob and Esau's relationship has now come full circle and caused them to turn on each other with Jacob's sons. The deceit and passivity exemplified by Jacob throughout his life is now present in his sons so that his sons are maybe even better deceivers than he was. His family is broken. It's wrecked. It's infested with sin. And the story ends so sadly with a father mourning uncontrollably for his son and his other sons there trying to comfort him but at the same time knowing that they're the ones who took the son away. But there's one word in this passage that changes everything. One word that changes the course of this story. And that word is meanwhile. Meanwhile, 
Jacob's mourning uncontrollably. The sons and daughters are pretending to comfort him. It seems like all hope is lost, that this family is forever broken and forever scarred and forever divided. But it says in the text that meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him, Joseph, in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. See, in the midst of incredible human sin and incredible human brokenness, God is setting up a plan to redeem His people. See, God is bringing Joseph to Egypt so that, so that Joseph would be able to prepare for the famine that was coming. And that through Joseph, all the areas or all the nations of the region would be saved from this famine that was about to occur. That if Joseph doesn't go to Egypt, then potentially all of Jacob's family is going to die when this famine comes. So God is setting up the stage. He's setting up the story. And we know that Joseph, whatever pride he has, is going to be leveled as he serves in prison. As he becomes a prisoner. As he becomes accused of doing something that he hasn't done. We know that God is going to use these events to one day reconcile this family together. That one day his brothers, Joseph's brothers, will stand before him as Joseph's the second in command of Egypt. And they'll repent and turn from their ways, and the family will once again be united. God is working, meanwhile. While it seems like all hope is lost, God is still working. And so we ask the question, where is God in the midst of our brokenness? Where is God when sin runs deep? When sin has so infested our area, our circumstances? And the answer is that in the midst of our brokenness, God is working in ways that we cannot see. As believers in Jesus, God is working in ways that we cannot see. Because we know that many years after that, after this, there would be another time where sin ran very deep. There'd be another time when there was great brokenness and great despair as the sky turned black, as the earth shook, as a man was hanging on the cross, the victim of the people's jealousy, pride, and rage, sold for 30 pieces of silver. His disciples, many of them, would flee in despair because they believed that all hope was lost. Their Messiah had been crucified. But meanwhile, 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 Jesus was the true elder brother who, unlike Reuben, who said, throw him into the pit, said, I'll go into the pit for him. Meanwhile, God was preparing a way for people from all different tribes and tongues and nations to be entered into a relationship with Him. Meanwhile, God was getting ready to raise Jesus up from the grave. In the midst of brokenness, God was working. Some of us today are facing relational brokenness. Brokenness in relationship with friends or family. Others of us are facing financial brokenness. Some of us are facing physical brokenness. Some of us are facing a struggle with an addiction. But in the meantime, meanwhile, 
in our brokenness, God is still working. God is still working. John Piper, in his book, A Sweet and Bitter Providence, says this in closing. Life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next, and then finally to heaven. Life is a winding and troubled road, switchback after switchback. And the point of biblical stories like Joseph and Job and Esther and Ruth is to help us feel in our bones, not just know in our heads, that God is for us in all these strange turns. God is not showing up after, not just showing up after the trouble and cleaning it up. He's plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. In the midst of our brokenness, God is working in ways that we cannot see. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your love for us. We thank You that as believers, even when we are in difficult circumstances, even though we live in a sinful world, sometimes we experience broken relationships, broken families, broken situations, that even in those things, You're working. That You're working for our good and for Your glory. God, I pray that we would trusting You, even in the hard times, even in the midst of brokenness, that we would use our brokenness to draw closer to You. Because we know that You are on our side and that You proved that as You came to the earth to die on the cross for our sins. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.